0: Master Hakun's chant and praises us in. From the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water no ice, outside us no Buddhas. How near the truth yet how far we seek. Like one in water crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path we wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Zazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, We go beyond ego and past clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form and going and returning we live leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless Samadhi. How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom what, what is there inside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land. And this very body, the body of Buddha. Today is the fourth day of our winter seven-day session, 3rd of August 2021, and we're going to um, continue reading from the life and teachings of Russell Williams, and the title of the book is Not I, Not Other Than I, edited by Steve Taylor. And um, we will just go back to the passage we were reading from. Um, right at the end of yesterday's show, because there was a little bit at the end that we, we um, didn't capture. He says, Contentment isn't something we aim for. It's not a question of moving forward to a destination but of dissociating ourselves from all the things that hold us back. We make ourselves clearer. We allow our true selves to shine through and contentment begins to emerge naturally. We might feel a sense of something missing, but there's nothing missing from us. What... Let me read that. I'll start that again. We might feel a sense of something missing, but there's nothing missing from us. We are what is missing from the whole. The whole is missing us. I think this is a very helpful way to understand that what's missing is our showing up. What 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 we need to shed or see through is our the ways in which we hold ourselves apart. He says the whole is missing us. We're estranged. We're like um, we're like the, the, the prodigal son. It's shame and pride and these sorts of emotions. Uh, keep us from going home. This the story of the prodigal son is 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 a biblical one, but it also appears in the Lotus Sutra in slightly different form, and no doubt that is what Master Hakuin is referring to when he says in his uh, chant and praise of Zazen, like a child of rich birth wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. We're children of rich birth, our birthright is our Buddha nature, and yet we're not able to use it. It's not able to function fully in our lives because we're estranged. But there is this 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 longing to return. could say Mu longs to be realized. He continues, we offer peace to others, the gift of peace. We don't shut anybody or anything out. We allow everything in. We absorb the world, but we don't possess it. We become one with it. When we were looking at this passage yesterday, um, I read from um, Coktrul Rinpoche uh, talking about self-importance and its, its all its dramas and distortions, and uh, this uh, triggered quite a lot of responses from you all. Um, Someone commented in Doksan that this term, which is a which comes from Vajrayana Buddhism, the Tibetan term, um, was translated at a, at a center that they visited as uh, self cherishing. And um, they remarked that this was unhelpful and and even conf- confusing. Um, many, if not most of us, come to practice with a habit of self-deprecation self-hatred even and surely that means that we need we need more self-importance not less we could also point to the first precept not to kill but to cherish all life you know we're each sentient beings we're we're part of that all life we're endowed with, with Buddha nature. Surely we deserve to be cherished as much as anywhere else, anyone else. And of course, the tr- yes, each of us is precious. And we must cherish our life. Um, but we're special only in the sense that every single human being and every single living being is unique and special. The the confusion that can arise around this uh, self-cherishing is one of the reasons why I prefer the translation self-partiality, though it's maybe not as hard-hitting as self-importance. I think we we get a very strong image when we hear self-importance. We may react quite strongly to self-importance and arrogance when we see it in others. Even as we have perhaps a hard time recogni- recognizing it in ourselves, but the the point the point that this term is is trying to get at is um, is really, in a sense, it's just plain old selfishness. Uh, we tend to treat ourselves differently than we do others. We tend to put ourselves first and have different standards for ourselves than we have for other people. And this comes up in all kinds of different ways, little and major. Um, I've told this one before, I think, but you you can imagine coming home after being out, the house is empty, and you uh, notice that the back door is unlocked. And you immediately assume that it was your spouse. And you, you begin to mentally rail against their carelessness. Uh, and then you you just think it through a bit more carefully and you realize that you were the last one out of the house. And so actually it was you who left the door unlocked. And then you may find that there's a subtle change in the commentary that goes with that. You You may... Be um, more forgiving to yourself and less forgiving to your spouse, or it could be the other round. And that when you when you realise that it was you, you blame yourself more more strongly. And the the point here is that you can. Um, it doesn't. It, it can come the the different standards we have for for the other, in in quotes can come out of either uh, a positive uh, self-image, in the sense of um, elevating ourselves, or from a negative self-image, lowering ourselves. The point point is that there's a distorted self-image that comes into play, and we strongly identify with it. And this is the problem. And, and remember here that to have a sense of self um, is normal and natural. It's As one teacher put it, it's a kind of natural by-product of the interaction between our senses and the world. We, we posit this, this center of consciousness that is experiencing things. But the the problem is that we don't stop there, but we attach to that image and defend it, and also believe, often believe in its distorted perceptions. For instance, we can read criticism or aggression into um, our co-worker's words uh, when, in fact, they're just having a bad day, or or we can resist taking legitimate feedback um, when it's given because it's at odds with our self-image. We somehow just don't hear it. There's a very helpful teaching within Buddhism called the Three Conceits. And it's a way of looking at how we we construct the sense of self, and then how we maintain it and feed it and with, with um, millions of micro-judgments. Um, the three conceits are, um, I'm better than you, that's the one we usually associate with being conceited, but then also, the second conceit is I'm worse than you, so superiority or inferiority. And then the third one is, is perhaps even more interesting, which is I'm as good as you. So, emphasizing equality. And it usually comes at, like, out as I'm as good as you or passively you're as bad as me. And I'll give some examples in a moment. All these these statements are blanket statements, and so they're wrong, and, and can be shown to be wrong in different ways. Um, comparisons. Somebody said comparisons are odious, and they um, form dualisms which don't really exist. But let's just just read a little bit from this this um, article. It's um, it's by Christina Feldman, who's a um, a Vipassana teacher. Christina Feldman. Conceit perpetuates the dualities of self and other, the the schisms that are the root of the enormous alienation and suffering in our world. Our commitment to awakening asks us to honestly explore the ways in which conceit manifests in our lives and to find the way to its end. The cessation of conceit allows the fruition of empathy, kindness, compassion, and awakening, these things that um, Russell Williams was talking about. The Buddha taught that one who has truly penetrated this threefold conceit of superiority, Inferiority and equality is said to have put an end to suffering. So it can be understood as being very um, central to our practice, identifying these conceits when they arise in us. Conceit manifests in the ways we contact, contract around a sense of self and other. It lies at the core of the identities and beliefs we construct and it enables those beliefs to be the source of our acts, words, thoughts and relationships. Superiority conceit is the belief in being better or worthier than another. It's a kind of conceit that builds itself upon our appearance, body, mind, intelligence, attainments, stature and achievements. It can even gather around our meditative superiority. We see someone shuffling and restless on their meditation cushion and then congratulate ourselves for sitting so solidly. We might go through life hypercritical, quick to spot the flaws and imperfections in others, sure that we would never behave in such inacceptable ways. Superiority conceit is easily spotted when it manifests in arrogance, bragging or proclaiming our excellence to the world. On retreat we may find ourselves rehearsing the conversations we will have with our partner, recounting our trials and triumphs, but especially our heroism in completing the retreat where others failed. We can feel remarkably deflated when his only interest is on when we're the, whether we're going to take out the garbage. It can be subtle in our inner beliefs, in our, in our specialness, rightness or invulnerability. Superiority conceit like a, looks like a safer refuge than inferiority conceit, thoughts about being worse than another but in truth both cause the same suffering. Feelings of superiority have the power to distort compassion into its near enemy, pity, and to stifle the capacity to listen deeply. Superiority conceit disables our receptivity to criticism because we become so convinced in the truth of our views and opinions. A traditional Buddhist story tells of the time after the Buddha's death when he descended into the hell realms to liberate all the tormented beings imprisoned there. Mara, the personification of delusion, wept and mourned, for he thought he would get no more sinners for hell. The Buddha said to him, Do not weep, for I will send you all those who are self-righteous in their condemnation of sinners, and hell shall fill up quickly again. Inferiority conceit is more familiar territory for many of us, probably because a chronic sense of unworthiness is so endemic in our culture. The torment of feeling worse than others and not good enough is the daily diet of inferiority conceit. A student on retreat came in distress to report that none of her familiar dramas and agitation were appearing and she was convinced she was doing something wrong. The teacher suggested that this odd experience could actually be one of calmness and was surprised when the suggestion was met with even more distress and denial, with the the student exclaiming, calm is not something I do. We can do this, we can actually um, miss our good qualities and discount our achievements. It's, it's, um, It's very sad this and, and in this sense this is where we could could use some some healthy self- cherishing inferiority conceit is fertile in its production of envy resentment judgment and blame which go round and round in a vicious cycle of storytelling serving only to solidify our belief in an imperfect self. Seeing the suffering of superiority and inferiority conceit, we might be tempted to think that equality conceit is the middle path. However, a closer look shows that it is more a conceit of mediocrity and minimal expectations. A quality conceit is when we tell ourselves that we all share the same delusion, self-centeredness, and greed, and we all swim in the same cesspool of suffering. We see someone falling asleep on their cushion and feel reassured. We observe a teacher dropping their salad in the lunch line, and it confirms our view that people are essentially and hopelessly mindless. Sameness can seem both comforting and reassuring. Thinking that. Others are also struggling on the path can make us feel relieved of the responsibility to hold aspirations that ask for effort and commitment. Equality conceit can express disillusionment with human possibility. When we look at those who appear happier or more enlightened than ourselves and primarily see their flaws, we are caught in equality conceit. I think this, is, this, this one is quite common in New Zealand, you know, we're all, we're all equal, don't like to have somebody um, prominently successful, we have this, like a somewhat casual attitude to things, she will be right. still going on about equality conceit. We see those who seem more confused or deluded than ourselves and we know we have been there. We see our own delusions and struggles reflected in the lives of others and think that we are relieved of the task of bowing. This article is, um, para, in a parallel is about about the, the power of bowing. The offspring of equality conceit can be a terminal sense of disappointment, resignation, and cynicism. After Al Gore's documentary An Inconvenient Truth was released, several newspapers responded by publishing the electrical bill of his home. What wasn't mentioned was how the home's electricity was generated by solar power. It seemed there was a driving need to reduce his message and show that we're all hopeless carbon emitters. All forms of conceit give rise to the endless thoughts and storytelling that solidify the beliefs we hold about ourselves and others. Liberating ourselves from conceit and the agitation it brings begins with our willingness to sensitize ourselves to the subtle and obvious manifestations of conceit as they appear. The clues lie in our judgments and comparisons, the views we construct about ourselves and others. Suffering, evaluating, envy and fear are all signals asking us to pause and listen more deeply. We learn how to recognize those moments, knowing they are moments when we can either solidify conceit or liberate it. Instead of feeding the story, we can nurture our capacities for mindfulness, restraint and letting go. Um, yesterday Tsongga Rinpoche was talking about renunciation and this this is really what he's talking about when we when we do notice these these um, conceits and can catch them then to release them put them down that's renunciation right there Instead of feeding the story, we can nurture our capacities for mindfulness, restraint and letting go. Instead of volunteering for suffering, we may be able to volunteer for freedom. It is not an easy undertaking. Yet, each moment that we are present and compassionate in the process of conceit building is a moment of learning to take a step on the path of freedom. It's a moment of of offering peace, as Russell Williams put it. Back to our text. chapter is called Living in Feeling. When you see completely clearly, that is when you see with a clear mind, then you find that the I is delusory and you can let go of it. It will go naturally. The mind won't hold on to it anymore. All things arise out of the unmanifest Therefore, all things that have arisen have the unmanifest behind them. So when you see their true nature, you find there is nothing. Therefore, they must have been delusory. Um, Two two things to point to here um, in his first words. When you see completely clearly. When you see and when you see completely. In other words, not... It's not um, uh, acquiring knowledge about the emptiness of self but um, having an experience of the emptiness of self and seeing completely because we, we can get inklings of, of emptiness but we haven't seen it completely and so it has uh, relatively less um, power to transform our lives. Yes, Satani Roshi used to use an analogy for, for the relationship between our eye, our the delusory eye, the small eye, and our mind as a whole. And he said it like the eye, the, the small self, is like the, the tip of the ballpoint pen, the part that, that writes. And our mind was like the whole pen itself stretching back behind that tip. You should bring mindfulness into daily life and give your full attention to everything you possibly can, but just one thing at a time. For example, you might be washing the dishes. Then something else appears and demands your attention. Whatever it is, leave everything else and give your full attention to that, containing nothing else but that which is present. This is truly living in the moment, which is, has a great reality you'll find that if you experience this even for only a few minutes you feel completely safe because you are because there is nothing separate from you nothing outside so this is some is something very ordinary but at the same time it's it's um, seems out of our reach. Our birthright seems to be distant. Our our daily lives often are structured in ways which which make the, what Russell Williams is talking about here very hard, in the sense that we're often in, in situations with, where we're multitasking. We've got m- multiple um, stimuli around us, media on, calls coming in, texts, And so we, we don't just do one thing at a time. I think really it's not a minor thing to really pay attention to um, our lives in this way and see how we can um, simplify them so that we're not completely overstimulated all the time and can give give full attention to what's right in front of us. This is what mindfulness is, full of that object at that moment, not cluttered up with a lot of other things. It's coming out of you, not out of anyone else. I guess he means here, um, mindfulness is in terms of paying attention. You've found the true teacher, not out there, but inside you. When you move beyond fear to a little more freedom, it begins to show itself for itself, by itself. It's almost as if there's something inside you unraveling you, and unravelling and showing you who you really are. From time to time, we all have thoughts that we don't want, which shows that there is a part of our mind which is always detached from thinking, which stands back and observes it. As we become clearer inside, the distance begins to open up between us and our thoughts. Gradually, a space appears between thoughts, and meditation can help with this, and eventually, thought is no longer automatic. We experience stillness, And this inner peace peace, spreads to the people around us. People sense it when they're near you, and it spreads to them. You become a much more amenable companion. People become drawn to you because you are still, not angry or judgmental. Thought is never true experience. It's a shadow of the real. This is where we come back to real things. What do you take as the real thing? The way you think about something or the way you feel about it. Feeling is the living process. Thoughts deal with other things. Thoughts come after. What What is immediate for us is... Um, uh, Sensation, emotion, and intuition. As I said before in an earlier talk, it seems that feeling for Russell Williams in his in his way of thinking covers a lot of ground. Not just not just emotions, but but sensations, and also uh, intuition in the sense of um, our ability to. Uh, immediately intuit a situation. Some uh, psychologists call this the super-sense now, where there's this processing that that can happen um, of our our environment, our situation, which is quicker than thought, more immediate, and we get physical physical, uh, messages from this processing. He continues: We can't consider the relationship between people as just a matter of passing information. It's based on a rapport. You feel this with your children and your partner. You don't have to think about it, but at the same time, it's not an emotional feeling, but rather a spreading out, absorbing feeling, which comes, which becomes whatever you experience. So there is no separation. Um, this is he was talking about this earlier: the sense of entering into the consciousness of another being and resonating with them. Um, this is something that's much more recognized in indigenous communities. The, the need to um, establish relationship uh, before any business is done. Establish rapport You are living in feeling, not in the false world of abstraction which thought puts you in. You learn to sense feel in a deeper way, not just emotionally, and you find that there is an extrasensory aspect to feeling which you aren't normally aware of. This means that you can take in a lot more experience and that you can respond in a much better way because there is a rapport. Thought always creates separation, but feeling... Brings union. When people are arguing over something, often what they're arguing about is not what they're really arguing about. They're not they're not arguing about the facts so much as they are arguing about some um, thing on the emotional level that that is impinging on one or both of them. Some some hurt some discomfort, usually. next chapter is called um, The Nature of Consciousness. Um, We're talking about this and the 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 pros and cons of using the word consciousness um, using words in any form. Um, And There's a little, uh, little um, story, a little wandau, which is the one that is behind the koan, um, what is this, which um, um, perhaps illuminates this, this question a little bit. And it's between um, the sixth ancestor, Hui Nung, um, whose dates are 638 to 713, a common era, and um, somebody who became one of his foremost disciples, Nanyue Huairang, whose dates is 677 to 744. Huairang entered the room and bowed to Hui Nang asked, where do you come from? I come from Mount Song, replied Huairang. What is this and how did it get here? demanded Hui Nung. Hui Rang could not answer and remained speechless. He practiced for many years until he understood. Uh, possibly checking other biographical um, material for eight years. He went to see Hui Nung to tell him about his breakthrough. Hui Nung said, what is this? Huai Reng replied, to say it's a thing misses the mark, but still it can be cultivated. To say it's a thing misses the mark, but still it can be cultivated. The first subheading in this chapter on the nature of consciousness is emptiness. He says if you endeavour to construct knowledge of what you're trying to seek, you close the door to the actual experience. The only way to attain the experience is to come to a complete emptiness of the thought mind, total emptiness. And if one dwells there for any length of time, then one begins to find that the emptiness was never empty because it contains the potential for all that may come to be. We enter into an area of extremely fine aspects of consciousness that, dissolving into itself, loses duality. And there is only that. Or we can say, only this. And this um, this image of of um, things dissolving back into uh, the void emptiness um, can be found now in in uh, atomic physics too. They talk about the the fecund void with particles being born and and returning constantly to this this uh, matrix of Um, fertility and life. If you take anything that is manifest, sentient or insentient, and look deeply into its nature, you find that it has the same nature of consciousness. There are so many things which have a truth about them. In Buddhism we have the unborn, the unmanifested, the uncreated, and out of that come the created and the manifest. Biblically, we have a similar thing in Genesis. In the beginning there was but void, out of which comes the so-called word. This is the vibratory aspect out of which comes the world. But all leads back to the emptiness, the no-thing from which something arises. No form of understanding can connect you to this. It has to be seen within itself. It's way beyond understanding. The peace that passeth understanding. That is the emptiness. This is completely fulfilling in itself. After suffering from delusion through many lifetimes, we find the truth. You can't explain it to anybody. It's not me doing it anymore. It's just the body going through its processes. You, you do think when you need to think but you find that thoughts arise by themselves, who's thinking them? Or do they just arise using the same process you would use if you wanted to think? Are you really thinking all your thoughts, or are they just passing through? Most of the time, it's just repetition, passing through, completely unnecessary. If we, if we look at our thoughts, and we get ample opportunity to do this when we're in Sashin, So many of them can just be the same old stories about ourselves over and over again we, we we tell ourselves the same stuff and and suffer because of it. I don't know if anybody here is is familiar with um, lyric opera, but um. And this, this applies to other songs as well, but um, it struck me that, that it was giving, giving musical expression to um, our, our inner um, monologue with all, all the repetitions, the same, the same words repeated many times, but of course turned into something beautiful rather than something just painful. And these things repeat themselves because they remain somewhat unconscious. And so if they have a life, even though we may, may not want to be thinking them, they have a, a life of their own because they're not, they're not, we don't see them clearly, we don't see them fully. You can just be instead of think. Unless you specifically want to think of something that's useful, it's just a habitual process which goes on inside our heads. Positive thought is one thing, irrational thought is another. A lot of the time we think things we don't want to think, so who's in control? When this happens, ignore the thought and go down into the feeling area. Gradually this brings some control, the ability to think when you want to. And to not think when you don't need to. Um, We, in whether it's breath practice or, or another practice, we talk about getting out of our heads and into our hara, into the belly. Then a questioner says, Sometimes thoughts have such a powerful momentum. The way to curtail that is to move from thought into feeling. The mind has to be active, never still. If it turns from thinking into a feeling, even in the sense of feeling nothing, it is still aware. It is still doing something, even when there's no activity. Consciousness can become still but it doesn't think it is still, it just knows it. When you examine the nature of the mind in stillness, it's actually very energetic, a contradiction in terms. The stillness, which is so-called silence, can be very active because of all the energy it contains. If you examine the Buddha's term mindfulness from the point of view of experience, you find that you cannot be mindful unless the mind is empty. Mindfulness means being full of what is in front of you and if it is full of this it cannot contain anything else I think here of um, um, the story that appears in um, Zen Flesh, Zen Bones which was one of the very first texts I ever read about Zen and I remember vividly first encountering this story where a professor goes to see um, uh, a master in Japan, and uh, he says he respectfully asks if the master will um, teach him something of Zen. And the master says, um, "Yes, come in. We'll we'll let, let's have a cup of tea together." And then when the he's the master is serving the professor, um, he pours him a, a small cup of green tea. And the the professor is about to take it, but the master keeps pouring, and the water spills over the edges of the cup, and the the professor is kind of flag, flabbergasted by this um, um, kind of uh, mistake by the master. But he he says then the master says something like. Um, your mind is like this cup. How do you expect me to teach you when it's so brimming over with ideas and thoughts and concepts? Russell William says, Concept and ideas have to go. There is only that, mindfulness. In the moment, this experience is all there is. Mind is pure consciousness. Not being conscious of thinking, that is something different. Thinking is just a process, not the mind itself. Mind is that which observes the thinking, not that which does it. I think, therefore I am. It's only true in the sense of I think, therefore I am an ego self. Otherwise it's completely wrong. You can only think in terms of duality. Duality creates ego consciousness. Duality is always unsatisfactory. There should ideally be total oneness. Everything else is fragmented. I think, therefore, I am an ego, not the deeper level of I am. Realization does not require identification. When we come to the point where that which sees knows only insight... Sorry, then we come to the point where that which sees knows only inside. It sees it within, not out there, because it sees the nature thereof. And the, this nature can only be known by its own expression within. We talk in, in Zen about um, turning the, the mind back on itself. Um, this is the, this is the, the looking within And we find everything there. As Master Dogen said, to study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by the 10,000 things. We'll stop here and recite the four vows.
1: I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate a great way of buddha i vow